For sermon this morning, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to take a break uh, today from our study through 2 Corinthians. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, the letter to the Hebrews is nearer to the back of the Bible and then the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 today. This is what the Holy Spirit says to us, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that although you revealed yourself in the past and many times in many ways, in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son. We thank you for the Son of God who reveals you to us by taking on flesh, by becoming a man. And then we thank you that he taught the apostles and that he, by the Spirit, guided them to write down your word so that you can reveal yourself to us through this word that we have now in front of us that speaks to us about you, the Son of God. And so we pray for your Spirit to help us to understand these words. We pray that you would show us the Son of God and draw our hearts in worship of him. And we pray all these things through him. Amen. You may have heard a song It goes like this. You better watch out. You better not cry. 
You better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. The cultural character of Santa Claus is a legalist. One person called him a Pharisee in a festive hat. A full-on, law-centered, judgmental moralist. Because, according to this song, he only gives good gifts to those who have been good. So what if you've been bad? What if you cry and pout? Does anybody know any child who doesn't cry and pout? And yet, somehow, they end up getting gifts. And so, if you were a child and you thought through this logically and philosophized and uh, took this to heart, then you would either get gifts, and so you would conclude, I'm a good boy, I'm a good girl, I'm a good person. And we minimize all the bad and all the sin. Or, if this were to actually happen and, and the child gets no gifts, that child might conclude then, well, I'm a bad kid. And what if year after year, because he is bad year after year, every child every year pouts and cries, year after year he got no gifts. How would he feel? What am I supposed to do? How can I possibly be good? I'm supposed to work hard and try to earn these good gifts, but I can't do it. And it's all because this character is a legalist. Well, thank God that God is not like Santa Claus. It is true that God is the one who sees you when you're sleeping, and he knows when you're awake, and he knows when you've been bad or good, but the truth is that all of us are bad. Every little kid is bad, but the good thing about God is that he is a gracious God. He's not a legalist. He gives gifts to bad people who don't deserve it. And in fact, he even gives sacrificially at at the cost of many things that cost him for the sake of blessing people who don't deserve it. Now, God is a God of justice as well as a God of grace. And so he finds a way to not just minimize sin or or pretend that nothing really happened, but he instead finds a way to deal with sin, to punish sin, but also to show goodness and grace to those who don't deserve it. Now, the question of how that can be true, how could God give good things to those who don't deserve it, that is what we think about around Christmas time, or should think about at least. It is what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to accomplish. It is what Christmas is about, that the Son of God took on flesh because this was the only way for God to both punish sin and to be gracious to bad people who don't deserve it. And this is what we want to think about this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 10. 
Why is it that we needed so badly for the Son of God himself to come into this world to save us? Why is it that we can't possibly earn these gifts from God? Why do we need his grace? That's what this passage answers for us. We're going to look at these 10 verses in two parts. The first part tells us that bulls and goats cannot save you. And then the second part, 5 through 10, tells us that not just anybody can save you. But it had to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's start looking at the passage and see how bulls and goats can't save you first. Hebrews 9 and 10 are the high point of the letter of Hebrews, and we're not going to go into the whole context of the book. We're not going through the book, and so I just want you to know this is the high point of this letter. As he has been writing to people who are tempted to go back to Judaism, a church maybe that's going back to Jewish ways, and he's writing to tell them to persevere in their faith, And he's told them throughout this letter they should persevere because Christ is so much greater than many of the things in Judaism. He is greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron because he's the great high priest, greater than Melchizedek. And now in 9 and 10, he's telling us that Jesus is the greater sacrifice. He is the true sacrifice that forgives sins. That's the point that he's trying to make in these two chapters. And so he makes this uh, point here in our passage, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. He is going to start out, uh, well, I'm going to start out by, by looking at verse 4, which is his conclusion of what he's trying to get them to see. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So verses 1 to 3 then are his explanation and his reasons for that conclusion. Why is it impossible for blood of bulls and goats to take away sins? But notice the word there, impossible. Not possible. I don't know how many different ways to say this, but it cannot be done. Impossible. It's not possible for the blood of animals to pay for the sins of human beings. I don't think it's too hard to understand why. Uh, Animals are not like us. They are something different, right? So animals, you can't can't, uh, have an animal do jail time for you. It just doesn't work that way because they are not like us. They are not human beings. These animals also are not exactly volunteering for these sacrifices. They are not knowing what's going on, carried along, to an altar, and then they are killed. So it's not like they're offering their own lives for someone else's sins. They're just there getting killed. Well, why then does God command Israel in the Old Testament to sacrifice bulls and goats? Well, that's what we're going to look at in the first three verses and see the reason why they cannot take away sins. So reason number one is in verse one, that they are just shadows. Verse one, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, 
Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices, continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The law, which included the commands to sacrifice animals in the Old Testament, they were designed to be shadows. Shadows of a reality. The good thing that was coming, which was Christ, was meant to have, at the beginning, a shadow pointing to those realities. Now, a shadow is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a shadow. It's not the real thing. I bet that uh, if you maybe like played some sort of game where you, with your family, maybe it's children or siblings or parents or whatever, you shined a light on your hands against the wall and looked at the shadow on the wall, I bet that you could guess whose hand it was. How you would, you know, you might have to take pictures of the shadows or whatever. However you want to play this game. Find some way to anonymously look at the shadow of someone in your family. Just their hand. I say your family because you have to know something about what their hand looks like. You have to know them well enough. But I bet that you could pretty easily guess whose hand it is. Because a shadow does have a pretty good resemblance to the reality. And even looking at a shadow of the hand of your child, let's say, you would be able to figure out that it's your child. And so the sacrifices, they are a good thing to get us to understand some things about the good thing to come, which was Christ. They were a shadow of the fact that our sins require death. The payment for sin is death. They were also a shadow of the fact that there was the possibility of substitution. And that God's way of dealing with this problem of sin and death was going to be through substitution. An animal dies as a substitute in the place of you. Your sins in Israel, Old Testament, your sins deserve death. And you go to the altar and you kill this animal and it points you to the fact that something must die so that you can live. Now I think in Bible times it was a lot easier for them to understand this concept. In our times, modern times, we don't uh, fully grasp the, the stark reality of this because when you take your food, your meat, maybe we'll eat some meat here at lunchtime, that meat will be sitting there on the table and I'm guessing that nobody watched that animal die. That animal was killed in a factory far away somewhere and you didn't have to see it die, you didn't have to kill it, you didn't have to process it or anything. But back then, in the Old Testament, they would have grown up their whole lives knowing that goat over there, that bull over there, I know that in a few years, it's going to get killed. My dad's going to kill that thing. That thing needs to die. And I'm going to watch it die, probably. 
I'm going to watch the blood be spilled because otherwise I die. I'm going to starve if that animal doesn't die. So this is a natural concept for them. Something needs to die so that something else can live. And that's what the sacrificial system was pointing to as a shadow. Now, the people in Israel who truly believed in God and they had genuine faith, they would have understood that this was just a shadow. And the problem was that many of them did not believe. They did not truly understand. And so they put, came to put a lot of focus just on the sacrifices. And that's why you see there's so much hypocrisy in the Old Testament. And God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. Your hearts are far from me. And that's because they had forgotten the, the true reality. They, God wanted love from them. And instead, they said, well, I can just do this thing and then go do whatever I want. They forgot. The shadow was pointing to the reality. So that's reason number one. The sacrifices can't forgive your sins because they're just shadows. They don't actually accomplish anything. Reason number two is in verse two. The sacrifices need to keep being offered. Verse 2, he says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? The worshiper, if he offers the sacrifice, it seems that he would have felt cleansed at that point. But Verse 2, he's making the point, well, then why did he keep sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing? It's not because, he said, he's, he's saying, it's not because he gets a sacrifice, but then he goes and sins again, so now he has to get another one. No, he says here, he still has a consciousness of sins. Otherwise, he would have stopped doing it. So the reason the people keep coming and coming and killing animal after animal, week after week or year after year, is because they kill the animal and yet they still feel this burden of sin. They don't feel cleansed. If you have a piece of clothing with a stain on it and you try to put some sort of detergent or stain remover on it, you scrub it and scrub it and scrub it, and the stain doesn't come off, what's your conclusion? This detergent doesn't work. This detergent is useless. It is not cleansing the stain. And so the people, when they keep coming and offering their sacrifices, and they still don't feel clean, their conclusion is... The sacrifices aren't good enough to cleanse me of my sins. Why? Because it's only a shadow pointing to the reality. And then here's the third reason it can't take away sins. In verse 3, they are a reminder of guilt. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So instead of coming and offering your sacrifice and feeling cleansed, you actually, when you get there and you do it, you just feel guilty. 
because it's actually just another reminder to you year after year that you are in debt. It's like imagine if you had to pay, you have a mortgage and, and uh, it's great if you're, you're paying your mortgage, it gives you this satisfaction like, oh, I can see my, my amount of interest is, is going down that I'm paying and, and I'm making progress toward paying off this house. Well, what if the bank made you pay every month but then didn't decrease the amount you owe or didn't decrease the interest that you're paying? They say, well, that just doesn't, it doesn't count. But you still have to pay. Would you enjoy paying that money every month? No, of course not. Every month you pay and you pay and you pay and you would get angry. This is doing nothing. It's not even decreasing what I owe. And yet they continue to make me pay. So these, these men, women, they would come They spent a lot of money raising these goats and these bulls and they would have to come and sacrifice. And yet their conclusion is, I'm still not cleansed. And you know what? I just have to come back next year and give up another bull, another goat, because I know that this next year I'm going to sin again. What do I do about this? How can I get rid of this guilt? And so the conclusion is, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And before we go on, you might wonder, what does this have to do with us? We don't live in a system where we are commanded to go and kill animals like Israel was. But I think one way that we can apply this to ourselves is to remember that our things that we do, our works, they cannot earn the cleansing of sin or forgiveness from God. And even the things that God commands cannot earn forgiveness. God commands us to do things. God commands us to worship and to pray God commands us to to do lots of things, and yet, when you don't do them, all you're doing is racking up more debt in God's sight. But when you do do them, all you're doing is staying even. You're, You're not earning any good points with God. You're doing exactly what you are commanded and required to do. You're a servant who's done your duty. And yet not doing them continues to earn you more and more debt. And so what we are called to do is to place faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Faith is the one thing that all of us are commanded to do, but it's really a not doing something. Picture somebody hanging from a cliff and they are holding on for dear life because they're about to fall hundreds of feet to their death, and then someone yells at them, let go, let go. They're they're being given a command to let go. They need to do something. They need to let go. But what does letting go mean? It means stop holding on, stop grasping. And why would you let go if you're hanging over a cliff? Because 
It must be the only way for you to live. It must mean that somehow someone is going to catch you. And you're trusting that by letting go and falling, there will be someone who will save your life. And that is what faith is. Faith is what we are commanded to do by not doing something, by stopping the rat race of trying to do good things to please God and earn his favor, but instead to rest upon Jesus Christ, to trust in him and his work that we're going to talk about. But you trust in him alone to save you. You realize you can't hang on anymore. You're you're the little kid who knows, I can't keep being good. I'm always naughty. I'm always pouting. What hope is there for me to get anything good? The only hope is for you to stop resting on all the things that you do and trust that Jesus Christ will save you. So, the things that we are commanded to do will not take away our sins, just like the sacrifices here. But now in the second part, in verses 5 to 10, we see not just anybody can save you. Not just anybody. Maybe you've uh, gone into an empty house or empty building, maybe a dark room. And you open the door and you say, is anybody there? Is anybody home? What do you mean when you ask that question? What does anybody mean? It means you're not asking, are there spiders in this room? You're not asking the house plants if they're in this room. You want to know, is there a person in this room? That's what literally anybody means. A body, a human body is that in this room. Well, in that sense, we're going to see in these verses that it's not just any person, any body that can save us. But there is one specific body. And so verse 5 starts with the word consequently. As a consequence of the fact that the sacrifices can't take away our sins, Christ came into the world. So on Christmas Day, You ask the question, why did Christ come into the world? One answer is because no other death could have saved you. Not the death of animals and not the death of just any body. And no good things that are commanded by God that you could do could possibly save you. Consequently, Verse 5, Christ came into the world. So let's read what he says, verses 5 and 6. When he comes into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. You'll notice there that There are these quotation marks. He's quoting Psalm 40, a psalm written by David. And so David says, God does not desire sacrifices and offerings. Some people have struggled. What what does that mean? Uh, Ultimately, I think it just means that 
God's ultimate desire was not for the animal sacrifices to forgive sins. And in some way, David realizes this. He realizes that the animal sacrifices aren't the real thing. They're just the shadow. Christ, when he comes into the world, he is saying, I'm coming into the world because I know that animal sacrifices aren't good enough. But instead, because of this, you have prepared a body for me. First, I think we can notice in verse 5 that the Son of God already existed. Christ came into the world. He didn't come into being when he came as a, a little baby. But he already existed as the Son of God, and it was the Son of God who came into the world. And he came into the world to take on a body. So we're going to see three things about this body in the rest of these verses. First thing that we see is that this body was prepared by God. Verse 5, a body you have prepared for me. The Son of God took on in his divine nature a body that was prepared by the Father with the power of the Holy Spirit. You might have heard people, pastors, theologians, bad ones, that have said things like, the virgin birth isn't really that important. The fact that Jesus was supernaturally born of a virgin doesn't really matter. What really matters is the resurrection from the dead or his death on the cross. One uh, famous pastor when I was in college, you probably wouldn't really even recognize his name. He, he said, the virgin birth is like a spring on a trampoline. And if you take out one spring on the trampoline, you still have the trampoline and it works pretty well. And so he's like, well, I'm not saying that I deny the virgin birth of Jesus. I'm just saying if he wasn't born of a virgin, it would be okay. We'd still have most of the faith. Well, that is absolutely wrong. That Jesus was born supernaturally by the virgin Mary, conceived by the vir uh, supernaturally, is of the essence of the Christian faith. It would be like cutting a giant hole in your trampoline. You can't jump on the trampoline. Because the sacrifice of Jesus doesn't work if the body is not prepared by God. How so? The fact that Jesus, is his human nature is created supernaturally by God tells us that he is sinless. Luke 1.35 says, this is uh, the angel talking to Mary. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be called Holy, the Son of God. How do we know that the child will be called Holy. Therefore, 
Therefore, the child will be called holy because the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and overshadow the womb of Mary. Because Jesus was not created in a natural way, his body was not created in a natural way, he is without sin. The Holy Spirit miraculously takes the DNA of Mary and he creates a human body, the Father by the power of the Spirit. And so because it's created directly by God, it is created holyly in a holy way, not in a sinful, natural way. So the body of Christ is created holy, which enables Jesus to be the perfect Savior. We also see that by being created by the Holy Spirit, we see the, the new creation coming about. Uh, those words in Luke that the Spirit will overshadow the womb of Mary, they should remind you of Genesis 1. And the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters, hovered over the darkness. And, and out of nothing, by the power of the Spirit, there was life. And so there's a new creation happening here in the womb of Mary. And it should also remind us, verse 5 should remind us in Hebrews, of, of Adam. God formed the body of Adam from the dust. God prepares the body of Jesus from the womb of Mary, from the, the DNA that Mary has. There are only two people in the history of the world whose bodies have been directly created by God, Adam and Jesus. And so it tells us that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the head of a new covenant, a new human race. That is why it is crucial to the faith that this body is prepared by God. Second, it's also an obedient body. Not just anybody could save you, but someone who was obedient. Look at verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Quoting the psalm, Jesus is talking about himself. I have come to do your will, O God. When Christ came into the world, he says, the reason I came was to do your will, O God. So part of God's will was that he would come into the world, that he would take on human flesh. He says that this is written of him in the scroll of the book, that he would come into this body prepared by God. Uh, this, is a, this is a hard verse. Your translations might be different you might say all kinds of different things, uh, but I'll just tell you my conclusion. The book is the book of Moses, the five books that Moses wrote uh, called the Torah. That's what David would have been thinking about as the scriptures of his day would have been the book of Moses. And it came in five volumes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the word for the scroll there would be like 
the head, the beginning, the beginning of the book. So, Jesus is saying, this will of God was written of him at the beginning of the book of Moses. Where could that be? Well, I believe it's Genesis 3.15, where we have the first prophecy that the Son of God would come into the world. It's a curse that God gives Satan, where he, the serpent, he says, he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, and her seed, the woman's seed, and the serpent's seed. And Satan would bruise the heel of the seed, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Now, what I want to point out from Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the woman. As far as I know, there's nowhere else in the Bible where it talks about the seed of a woman. It's always the man's side, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. Even a couple chapters later, it's going to say, Adam fathered, Adam fathered, Adam fathered. And so I think that in Genesis 3.15, there's a prophecy, a hint, that this seed, this Messiah, he was going to be the seed of the woman. He would not come from a human father, from a man. And so, this seed of the woman created, especially prepared as the, the body by God, he would come to do God's will to crush Satan. Christ also came to do God's will throughout his life on earth, obeying God, living a sinless life. It shows us that by his obedience and his sinlessness, he is not going to die for his own sin. If someone dies, they are usually, except for Jesus, dying as a punishment for their sin. The punishment for sin is death. If Jesus had sinned even once, and then he had died, that death would have been the just punishment. For his sin. So the fact that Jesus dies, and yet he dies without sin, shows us he is not paying for his own sins. He is paying for the sins of others. That is why it had to be an obedient person. And that brings us to the last point which is not just anybody can save you, but a sacrificed body had to save us. Let's read verses 8 through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, Jesus Christ once for all. So verse 8 reminds us of what we talked about, 
Sacrifices are not, of animals aren't going to accomplish sin. But verse 9, Jesus comes into the world to do the will of God. And that, in verse 10, is to offer up his body as a sacrifice once for all time. Why did God prepare the body? Why did Christ come into the world to join himself with this body? It is so that he could do verse 10. So that he could offer his body. Because through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once, the people of God can be sanctified. Why did the Son of God take on a human nature with blood? So that he could bleed. Why did he take on flesh? So that that flesh could be ripped up by whips. Why did he have a beard? Because it's prophesied that they would pluck out his beard. Why did he take on a body with human nerves it's so that those nerves would feel pain so that he would feel the pain of nails piercing his hands and his feet thorns piercing the brow why did he take on a human face it was so that his face could be spat upon and slapped. Why did he take on a tongue? So that his tongue could taste the bitterness of that drink that they would give him on the cross. And most of all, by taking on a human nature, Jesus took on a human soul. Why? Because it was his soul that would be exceedingly sorrowful. It was his soul that he would offer as an offering for guilt. It was his soul that would feel not physical pain, but wrath. The full brunt of the wrath of God. Fully poured out on him down to the dregs, not one drop being spared the soul of Jesus. This body was prepared for Christ, and Christ took on this body so that he could offer up this body as the payment for sins, payment for bad people, payment because this is the only way for people like us to be cleansed and forgiven of our sins because nothing that we do can cleanse our sins. No sacrifices of bulls and goats can cleanse us from our sins, but the body of Jesus Christ can forgive you of your sins. If you trust and rely upon Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, you can know once for all that your sins are paid for, that your soul is cleansed, Because Jesus has experienced all the punishment, all the condemnation that you deserved.
you can be sanctified through the offering of his body. If you are not following Christ, today you should rely upon Jesus Christ alone because this is why he came into the world. Give him your life. Follow him completely. Turn away from your sins and go to him. Let go of trying to do things on your own, your way. Rest upon Christ alone to save you. Those of us who follow Christ, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. Let us celebrate. Christ came into the world. This body was prepared for him so that this body could be offered for our sins once for all. Let's pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you and we thank you for all you've done. This great work of salvation and redemption of your people. Father, thank you for your great plan and your great love in sending the Son into the world. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience, even to the point of death, and offering up yourself. And Spirit, we praise you and we thank you that for many of us here, you have opened our eyes to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified is the wisdom of God when we used to think that it was so foolish. And so we pray that you would help us to love you and return our lives as living sacrifices and praise to you. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen.